Welcome to Medically Speaking, Auburn's own medical radio show with host Dr. Mark Vaughn of the Auburn Medical Group and Larry Finney. Welcome to Medically Speaking Radio with Dr. Mark Vaughn of the Auburn Medical Group and... I'm Larry Finney, his faithful layperson sidekick. And we're glad to be talking to you about health issues today. We're excited about our guests that we have coming up later in the show, Dr. Joshua Hampman. Of the Hospitalist Program. At Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital. We're going to talk about some stuff that's in the news. There's just so much coming out right now uh, related to health news. So in the little bit of time we have before we jump into the interview... After the first break, we need to uh, talk about a few different things here. Yeah, you know, we, we talked about um, screening uh, screening tests before, With, right? Uh, Dr. Shahid. Right, and talking about the relative risks of exposure to things, or mm-hmm. that, and that some tests are worthwhile. They're very worthwhile doing because they're going to give you some information up front. They're yeah. not invasive. They're not particularly dangerous, and they're worth doing. But... Um, you know, on the heels of that, I, I, there's there's a lot in the news now. Uh, well, I'll just read you the headline. Uh, Experts question motives of mammogram guidelines. Uh, this is a Reuters uh, wire story. Cancer experts fear n- new U.S. breast imaging guidelines that may recommend against routine screening mammograms for women in their 40s may have their roots in the current drive in Washington to reform health care. So apparently this fairly obscure uh, branch of Department of Health Services, it's called the U.S. Services Task Force. It's an independent panel, but they've come out uh, just this week and said that women shouldn't have their mammograms at, at age 40. Let's start them at age 50 instead. Uh, not only that, they, they also recommend the United States Preventive Services Task Force, uh, which is under the NIH, also recommended doing it every two years instead of every year. They also recommended against teaching women to do a, a self-breast exam. And a lot of people initially, when they hear this, are up in arms and saying, how in the world could they? Uh, because intuitively, you would think that looking more for something is better that you're going to be catching more cancers. And, of course, that's what the American Cancer Society's take is on it. Mm-hmm. You're going to be catching more cancers. You're going to be saving lives with this. In looking at what the United States Preventive Services Task Force, I, I get that right almost every time, yeah. says uh, in defense of their change of recommendations, they're pointing out that we're doing an awful lot of procedures on women who would never be harmed by breast cancer. Now, we see this in our office all the time. We have follow-up imaging for uh, false positive mammograms. A lot of that imaging leads to biopsies for false positive mammograms or or self-examination. You do enough of these uh, follow-ups for false positives and somebody gets hurt because you're actually doing invasive procedures. Let me let me give you a quote by uh this is from Dr. Carol Lee. She's the chair of the American College of Radiology Breast Imaging Commission. She, she her fear is that insurers both public and private will use the, these new guidelines to pare back health costs. In other words, they won't insurance companies won't pay for mammograms before the age of 50. And she says that since the onset of regular mammogram screening in 1990, The death rate from breast cancer, which had been unchanged for the preceding 50 years, has decreased by 30%. Um, I see a little bit of um, 
Uh, it's, that's kind of a loaded statistic. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Because it doesn't take into account treatment. Right. Right? I mean, are there, aren't there breakthroughs in treatment since 1990? Right. And, and, and the types of treatment available before 1990? And, and the preceding 50 years? And the NIH would say, how much difference is there between that and if we did it just every other year in people age 50 and older, would there be, uh, would there have been a, uh, uh, that much less of a difference? And they would argue that actually uh, there wouldn't be that much less of a difference. Uh, we're, we're operating on a lot of breast cancer of a particular type that they talk about a lot in this called DCIS or uh, ductal carcinoma in situ, meaning it hasn't broken through a structure called the basement membrane inside the, the ducts, the milk ducts mm-hmm. in the breast. It's estimated that possibly up to half of DCIS will never go on to become an invasive cancer beyond just sitting there. We don't know. We really don't know that much about it because nobody's really inclined to just let it sit there and find out. So we, we take it out. So there's a lot of people getting uh, lumpectomies or, or mastectomies, depending on, on uh, different situation, clinical situation. And it may not be something that would ever cause clinical disease. Well, now, uh, for those who might uh, worry about the fact that a government agency is now setting this new guideline, who set the original age 40 guideline? Well, actually, both the American Cancer Society and the U.S. Preventive Services? Both of them uh, had the age 40 uh, from years back. Okay, so in other words, the same government body agreed that you should start the screenings at 40. Yeah, I, I don't know how old that Initially. was when they when they did that. They're saying that it's based on both new information and it's kind of interesting how they word it. Uh, reevaluation of information that isn't new. And so I'm not quite sure what that means. I do know that we have two uh, competing recommendations out there now that doctors should be very comfortable going with either of these bodies for the recommendations. And so we're kind of in the middle here looking at Okay, why are they making one recommendation? Why are they making another one? And, and making decisions with the patients about what's best for them. And so yeah. it's going to take conversation with patients. Right. And, and, and here's, here's another quote from a doctor. I'll give you the quote first, and then we'll, we'll read who it came from. This, this doctor says, At least 40% of the lives saved by mammographic screening are of women aged 40 to 49. Um, in other words, and then he goes on to say that these recommendations, which is the new recommendation, are inconsistent with current science and apparently have been developed in an attempt to reduce costs. Now, this doctor is a Dr. W. Phil Evans, who is the president of the Society of Breast Imaging. Um, <laughs> now, uh, yeah, I'm, right. I'm kind of cynical. Is it follow the money time? Who's okay? Who, who is who? This is one group accusing the others of trying to pare back costs. Is this is is he of a group that yeah. serves to profit by? I, I think that's imaging? a legitimate question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the thing that the uh, the NIH group was pointing out with that DCIS is that if you do it every other year instead of every year, because that was another part of the recommendations is for age fifty to seventy four every other year instead of every year. They say you're missing very very little of what you would catch otherwise. A lot of people would cry out, why would we want to miss any? And legitimately so. And their justification for it is, you cut the number of biopsies for false positive mammograms mm-hmm. in half. Well, okay, so uh, at the end of this argument, what, what's your stance? What do you think? Is, is this going to 50 a good thing, bad thing? You Too know, early to tell? You know, from the way I talk about mm. screening tests, that I, I like less and I like to get big benefit for what I do have. Mm-hmm. 
I also have this own idea of myself that uh, where there's a lot of discrepancy in recommendations, it's probably really not all that beneficial. And so, of course, I'm going to absolutely be getting mammograms on women age 50 to 74 who have no family history or, or self-history of breast cancer. Probably going to be doing it every one to two years. In ages 40 to 50, the group that this new information says not to do it on. Those with the family history should be the ones. Who I'm currently recommending that they do it every other year. Um, I'll probably talk to them individually and, and talk about it with them because I have many women who would really prefer not to have mammograms. And I will tell them that there is one group out there that interprets the data that would support that, that feeling that they don't want to have their mammograms. I'll encourage them to get them when they get age 50. And then for those who say, you know, I'm really concerned. I, I don't have a family history for breast cancer, but I'm really concerned about it. I want to do all I can to check for it then I'll probably be doing mammograms every other year on on those people age 40 to 50 that feel that way. Hmm. Okay. Hey, how are we doing for time? Do we have time for another uh, news story? Chomp in here? Yeah, we do. Okay. Well, you remember our little chat with Dr. Neil Bombach? Uh, We talked about post-herpetic neuralgia to to reset the table for those uh, who may have heard that story and those who didn't. Um, Post-herpetic neuralgia is the pain that comes from uh, folks who have had shingles, as I recall. And there's a way to prevent that Right. There's mm-hmm. a shot that that the uh, patient over the age of what are they recommending it at 60 now? Over age 60, they can get the Zostavax vaccine mm-hmm. against the uh, the virus, which they probably have if they ever had chickenpox or were exposed to people who had chickenpox. Right. Then this keeps them from getting shingles to begin with. Correct. And thus would not uh, get the post-herpetic neuralgia. The upshot of post-herpetic neuralgia is what is quite painful, and there is no cure for it. And uh, as Dr. Bombach said, the, the, the cost of the shot, the cost of the vaccine, which might put you off initially, uh, his patients who have this post-herpetic neuralgia they would gladly, would pay. gladly pay the amount. Yeah. Well, oh, there's yeah. news for these folks. There's apparently the FDA has approved a new treatment for this post-herpetic neuralgia. Uh, it's a new drug called Quitenza. Quitenza, yes. Um, basically, it works with, uh, it's got synthetic capsaicin, the stuff that makes chili yeah. peppers burn. Yeah, that's exactly and what I, it is. And I guess it's a transdermal patch or something. You put it on the patient, and it, it, there were, you, you may feel some sensation. Oh, yes, it will burn. <laughs> oh, yeah, the instructions are to actually apply a topical anesthetic, so there's no yeah. sensation okay. there. And you have to wear gloves when you put on, because it, what it does is it totally depletes the, the body of um, what's causing the pain. Okay. So you will hurt. <laughs> Yeah, well, it says but after then, an hour, the doc removes the patch. Um, the drug burns during application, but most folks say they'll, they'll they, they're willing to put up with that for the relief that they get. Yeah, in the clinical oh, trials. Yeah. Um, however, at the clinical trials, only forty to fifty percent of treated patients reported that their pain was at least thirty percent less severe. So it still sounds, and they have to repeat the treatments. Yeah. So it yeah. sounds like the better option is to get the darn shot. <laughs> Really, if you can. For, for those who have it, though, um, I'm going to be looking into this. I, I can't find it in a lot of the drug information because it's so new, but it's something we're going to try to get in our office. We need to be uh, wrapping up because in 30 seconds, we have to go to our uh, wonderful musical disclaimer. Oh, I love that thing. I just yeah. love it. Not having to read so fast. And then after the break, we'll, we'll come back with the interview with Dr. Hampman from the Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital Hospitalist Program. So since we won't be talking live, to our uh, audience anymore after this. We want to tell them to uh, stay in good health, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. 
Please enjoy the interview with Dr. Hantman about the Hospitalist Program. The content of this website and the Medically Speaking Radio Show are meant for entertainment and for general information purposes. No doctor-patient relationship is attempted or implied through the show or the website. Any medical advice, home remedies, and all other medical information on this website or radio show should not be treated as a substitute for the medical advice of your own doctor. Do not attempt any treatment mentioned on the website or the show without consulting your doctor. Always consult your own doctor if you are in any way concerned about your health. If you need a doctor and live near Placer County, call Jen at 530-886-8630. If you have a medical emergency, call 911. Medically Speaking Radio, Dr. Mark Vaughn, Auburn Medical Group, K-Hi Radio, and or our sponsors are not responsible for any diagnosis or treatment made by anyone based on any of the content of this website or the Medically Speaking Radio Show. In addition, the views and opinions expressed on the show or on linked websites are not necessarily those of Dr. Mark Vaughn, K-Hi Radio, the Auburn Medical Group Incorporated, or any of the show sponsors. Since 1966, Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital has been providing award-winning care to members of the community, to people just like you. The tradition of excellence continues today with our comprehensive family birth center, cancer services, 24-hour emergency care, and a whole range of outpatient services with convenient hours and locations to serve you. In addition, we've been recognized for excellence in managing heart attacks, heart failure, pneumonia, and surgical care. We are one of a select few hospitals in the state to earn recognition from VHA's West Coast region for sustained outstanding clinical performance. To learn more about Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital, visit us on the web at sutterauburnfaith.org slash medically speaking radio. That's sutterauburnfaith.org slash medically speaking radio. Sutter Health, with you for life. Larry, have you ever been to Auburn Drug Company? Yeah, that's the one with the marble soda fountain at 815 Lincoln Way. Yeah, right there in front they have the marble fountain. And in back is an independently owned pharmacy right here in Auburn. And that thing has been around for a long time. Since the 1800s. They are so great because they actually fill your prescriptions when you ask them to. Unlike the chain drug stores that make you wait. You know, and waiting there wouldn't be a big crime because, heck, you could always go to the soda fountain. That's Auburn Drug Company at 815 Lincoln Way in downtown Auburn. Give them a call at 885-6524. Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Okay, we're back from the break, and we do have, as promised, Josh Hampman, the hospitalist from Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital, here with us. Say hello to all the Hi. nice people there. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we're glad to have you. Uh, we were talking a little bit with Larry before we got started that uh, we wanted to go over your background as far as your medical career and schooling, and uh, just so our listeners know who you are and where you've been and where you're coming from. Well, I actually went to medical school at uh, University of Hawaii in Honolulu, believe it or not, and uh, I have family there and uh, um, had a great uh, medical school uh, experience, as great as medical school can be. And um, after that, I did my residency training at Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. And what was your uh, residency? Uh, internal medicine. Okay. Any fellowships after that? Nope, just uh, came here after I finished the internal medicine uh, residency, and I've been here ever since. Did your program have a special emphasis for primary care, for hospitalist care, or, or was it just general internal medicine? 
the residency program had a primary care track, um, but because uh, the uh, traditional uh, residency program for internal medicine is mostly inpatient work, and um, I did the traditional um, internal medicine residency program. Okay, and when you came, was it to the hospitalist program here at Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital? It was, and the hospitalist program had been uh, up and running for about one year before I got here. Okay, doing my duty as the layperson, as the resident layperson, I shall have to ask you to explain what the hospitalist program is. Well, um, if you, in order to do that, um, it's easier to go back to the way it was before there were hospitalists. Uh, before there were doctors uh, in the hospital um, that stayed there all the time, uh, primary care doctors would go in in the morning, see their patients that were in the hospital, and then go to the office. And um, sometimes after the office work was done, they'd go to the hospital again um, and see their patients again. And um, there were a lot of difficulties with that type of system. Um, one difficulty is that during the day, if a patient needed to be admitted to the hospital, the doctor was in the office seeing patients there. So it would be very difficult to get to the hospital and see their patient uh, in the emergency room or uh, wherever they were uh, at the hospital. And uh, secondly, if there were any problems with patients at the hospital, the doctor couldn't really get there during the day. So uh, unless they left their office full of patients uh, waiting and you know went to the hospital to see the patient who needed to be seen right away. And so um, what happened is over time, um, doctors started to delegate uh, one, for instance, if you had a group of doctors, uh, they would delegate one uh, physician to be doing the hospital work for that week, perhaps, and then the other doctors could stay in the, uh, in the office. And so that's what they were doing uh, prior to about 2002 in Sutter Medical Group. Uh, in Auburn, the um, there were about a total of maybe eight or ten primary care doctors, and they would designate one person to do the hospital work. And um, but uh, but it became difficult to um, to be in the office and then be out for a week and go back to the office. So what happened is one of the primary care doctors, David Gallagher, decided to move into the hospital, and, um, and because he really enjoyed hospital work and he was good at it, and so he moved into the hospital and started the hospitalist program and a hospitalist is a doctor who uh, specializes in hospital medicine or in, in the care of hospitalized patients and so he moved into the hospital and started taking care of the patients for Sutter Medical Group and it became apparent that um, he needed uh, he needed partners in the hospital so uh, that's when uh, he hired two other doctors um, and I was one of them and that was in 2003. 2003 mm -hmm. and who was the other one? Uh, Dr. Bill Griffiths. Yeah, okay, and the two of you are there to this day, still side by side, shifting uh, or trading shifts, and, right. uh, covering our patients for us. Mm -hmm. You have some other ones who have joined you since then. Yeah, the the program has actually grown quite a bit. I mean, we started out with three doctors full time in the hospital, and um, we did a combination of covering uh, virtually all the days, and then we would also cover some of the nights, and uh, some of the nights were also covered by. Uh, some of the primary care doctors would help us do the nights and they would come in if we needed people for vacation and things. But um, over time, um, more and more physicians felt that it was difficult for them to see their patients in the office and also try to take care of their patients in the hospital. So 
other medical groups other than Sutter Medical Group began to ask us, can you take care of our patients? And uh, I, I feel that they also saw that we were doing a good job. So they asked us if we could do that for them. So we've expanded quite a bit. We've gone from having um, two doctors in the hospital during the day and um, not always someone at night. Essentially, we would come in as needed at night to having three doctors during the day and someone there every night. So we're now a 24-7 program with a doctor in the hospital um, around the clock. With four shifts a day? Right, four shifts, three day shifts and one night shift. So typically, how many individual patients might you attend to during the course of a shift? It really varies. Uh, One thing about um, hospital medicine is that you can't schedule your visits. Um, It all depends on how many patients um, happen to get sick that day and happen to get sick enough to need to be in the hospital. So it can vary anywhere from eight patients, as few as eight, or uh, sometimes even less if it's very slow, up to as many as 18. Um, and uh, we've yeah. even been above that occasionally. But You're talking admissions? Uh, those or? are just um, hospital encounters or, or visits. Um, we may do three admissions um, and, uh, and see eight or ten patients in addition to those three admissions. Um, what We try to keep it to 12 encounters per day. Hospital encounters take longer than, um, than office encounters because um, the patients are mostly new to us, so we have to get to know their history. And also, uh, they have uh, serious and sometimes complicated medical problems that need to be dealt with. Often they have x-rays to look at, a lot of lab tests to review, as well as their history. So it does take longer to see patients in the hospital. So we try to keep it to about 12 encounters per day. Try to keep it. How do you keep that number down? Do you call in somebody on call? or? Well, um, what we've done is we've tried to staff the program to uh, what we expect the needs to be. Um, we, um, w- For instance, we've hired a new um, physician recently uh, in order to move from two doctors during the day to three because our average number of patients that we were seeing was just too many. And uh, um, we were averaging above 15 most of the time per day. And um, when it's like that, you feel rushed and you can't spend as much time as you want to spend. And so um, what what we did was we started a new team, and now we have three teams. Uh, We also have the ability to flex so that if it's slow, we can send someone home. I'm I'm getting the impression, probably falsely, that the primary care physician is now cut out of the loop with respect to these patients, or are you in consultation with the the primary care physician? We um, definitely keep in close contact to the primary care physicians. Um, For many of the physicians, we have the ability to share the medical record, and that helps a lot. Um, Many of the physicians in the area have gone to electronic medical records, and uh, actually Sutter has made an effort to uh, make the hospital electronic medical records available to physicians even that aren't within Sutter Medical Group or within the Sutter system. And so the physicians can follow along that way. But we actually um, really try to um, contact the primary care physicians regularly, uh, give them an update. Um, Whenever a patient leaves the hospital, we definitely 
call or or contact that physician in, in the way that they like to be contacted. Some want emails and things. Yeah, like you that. guys, you guys call me on my patients. And as far as the system that that uh, Dr. Hammond's describing, I actually daily get on to a website that Sutter has, and with a a code and my password, I'm able to see that day's records as far as who's been discharged or who's been admitted. So I know from that that a patient of mine had to be admitted overnight or or had to have an operation or, or had to have a, a CAT scan in the emergency department, something along those lines. I think it works um, well. I would say that, you know, there are pros and cons to any system. I mean, clearly the, the, the drawback to having a system like this is that um, uh, – when we go to see a patient, we don't have a long history of knowing that patient. Although there are some patients, there are some people who unfortunately do spend a lot of time in the hospital and we get to know them very well. Um, but um, the there are a lot of um, advantages to having physicians that specialize in hospital medicine that are in the hospital all the time. And I think that um, they definitely outweigh the um, the negatives. And most of the primary care physicians I've talked to agree. Would be things like helping the the patient make a good menu choice for lunch, that that sort of thing. Because hospital food can be kind of dicey, right? Well, we know, yeah, where you know, uh, which meals are the best. But actually, um, I think that the real advantage uh, there's a, there's a couple of them. One is that um, when you do something very often, you get good at it. You see all the different ways that a particular medical problem can um, present itself. And for instance, um, something like pneumonia, um, we take care of so many different patients with pneumonia that we really get to, um, to know pneumonia inside out. Uh, same with congestive heart failure and, uh, cardiac arrhythmias. Um, and, um, so whereas, uh, certain conditions that are, are more frequently seen in the outpatient setting, we, um, you know, we're not. Uh, we don't see as much. And so we're able to really specialize in those types of uh, illnesses that you see uh, in the hospital. And um, another advantage is that because we're on site and we don't have to get back to, uh, you know, an outside office, we have the time to sit down and uh, discuss patients' medical issues with them. And sometimes there are difficult decisions that need to be made in the hospital, decisions about um, how aggressive uh, the medical care is to be, what's the focus of the medical care, and um, and other types of decisions that uh, patients and their families really need to sit down and speak with a doctor and that can spend the time and can also come back later in the day and talk again. And so we have the ability to do that. That's absolutely true. I'm limited in my ability to interact with patients in the hospital setting because I have to be in the office for the patients that are scheduled to have appointments. With these guys, they're able to be there to talk to them. And then there, there's been times when you've called me about consulting back and forth on, on our mutual patients, my patients inpatient, uh, when those difficult decisions have to be made. And we've been able to walk through some of those together so that the patients have you there in the hospital on that end, and then they have me on the outside because I'm going to be picking them up when they get discharged to be able to uh, have that continuity of decision-making and that we're on the same page. I love that about having consistently the same guy who's seeing my patients in the hospital like you and, and Dr. Griffiths, who, who I'm, I know because of these interactions. I also wanted to say you were talking about medical problems that you guys 
get used to, you mentioned pneumonia and CHF. You're absolutely right. When I see it in the outpatient setting, it's when it's controlled, when it's mild, it's not a severe exacerbation. You guys see it when it's at the point of the patient's not getting enough oxygen, not able to breathe unassisted. And so it's a different aspect of it. You guys are much more familiar with than the guys out on the outside like me are. And so patients get better care because of that, because it's somewhat specialized. One of the other things about the, um, the hospital physicians at our hospital is that, um, we, um, we do quite a bit of intensive care, uh, work as well. And, um, um, we have very good outcomes in our intensive care unit. So, um, patients that actually, um, need the assistance of a mechanical ventilator and things like that, uh, we're able to take care of those patients and, um, our outcomes are, uh, at least as good and in some cases better than the, uh, than the larger hospitals in the area. Yeah, and we've seen that on those reports. Mm-hmm. We need to take a break here. Uh, this is Medically Speaking Radio with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney speaking with Joshua Hampman from the Hospitalist Program at Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital. We'll be back after this. Few things in life are harder than thinking about serious illness or the death of someone you love. Research confirms that Americans want the basic services that hospice provides, care at home or in a home-like setting treatment that preserves a sense of dignity and respect. Emotional and spiritual support for patients and for their families and effective pain management. Hospice helps patients and their families deal with end-of-life challenges in a life-affirming, compassionate way that brings dignity, hope, and love to every day of life. This message of love and caring is the focus of hospice care. This message is brought to you by Sutter Auburn Faith Hospice. We can be reached at 886-6650 or click on the link for Sutter Auburn Faith Hospice on the Medically Speaking Radio website. This is Dr. Mark Vaughn. I want to tell you about my dentist, Rodney Kihara. His office is located right in town at High Street and Auburn Folsom Road. His staff is pleasant. They smile when you walk in, and you know who they are because they're there every time. We're talking about Flo, Cheryl, and Judy. Their pleasant faces welcome you into the office and let you know that you're in the right spot, a comfortable place to go to the dentist. Call Dr. Kihara's office at 888-1966. That's 888-1966. The doctor would say don't stick anything in your ear. Unless, of course, it's medically speaking. On K-High, the voice of the foothills. Now, back to medically speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Welcome back from the break. Here we are, Dr. Mark Vaughn of Medically Speaking Radio with Larry Finney and our special guest, Joshua Hantman of the Hospitalist Program. Uh, You were talking a little bit about how your performance, when it's checked on... um, some kind of a rating system or, or grading that it looks better sometimes than even a bigger hospital. Was, was there a, a specific mm-hmm. uh, score that had come out recently? Well, there's actually a lot of different parameters that we look at. And um, um, one of the things that we look at, of course, is um, um, length of stay in the intensive care unit. Uh, we look at outcomes uh, such as mortality. Um, we look at... Um, other outcomes and measures such as uh, blood sugar control, which is a uh, a predictor of uh, of other outcomes, and in virtually every category, 
um, we um, have been as good as, uh, or in some cases better uh, than the um, than the larger uh, hospitals in the area. Um, I think that one of the reasons why we're able to do such a good job is that uh, we have a smaller number of physicians who work in in the hospital and in the intensive care unit. So when um, a Im- quality improvement measure comes along that we want to work on, we're able to get everybody on board pretty quickly. Uh, and so that really helps. So you have ways of measuring whatever this is that you want to be better, ways that you measure patient health. You mentioned mortality, which is mm-hmm. patient death. Mm-hmm. You mentioned blood sugar control. And so you guys set up some way of measuring that on a regular basis, decide what you're going to change to improve it and see if it works. Correct. That quality control circle mm-hmm. that uh, many uh, many different uh, lines of work are doing. You know it in your work, right, Larry? And uh, so certainly in medicine, we, we practice that, which actually is the scientific method. That's, that's true. And, you know, I think that medicine in recent years has borrowed a lot from, uh, believe it or not, the airline industry. Hmm. Um, the airline industry is tightly controls the way things are done. They don't have a pilot hop into uh, the cockpit and just sort of say, okay, everything looks good, let's go. They have checklists, and they make sure that everything's working. They check everything before they go, and um, they have a special order that they do everything in checklists. And so um, in medicine, we've moved towards um, more regimented ways of taking care of patients. We have uh, order sets that... um, if a patient has a specific condition, we have specific orders that we go through so that nothing is forgotten. Because in some cases, ten different things need to be addressed uh, that are all been that have all been shown to improve outcomes. And so uh, we use order sets to help us uh, to remember all of the uh, the different things that we need to do so nothing gets missed. But the the region as a whole also uh, measures outcomes. Uh, the hospital uh, measures a lot of these outcomes and. Um, there's also a, a special um, electronic ICU uh, that keeps track a lot of our quality measures in the intensive care unit, uh, and there's 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 a whole bunch of them actually. Uh, for instance, just to give you one example, uh, when patients come into the hospital if they're very sick, they often uh, can't move around very much, and when they're bed bound like that, they have a tendency to get blood clots in their legs, and those blood clots can sometimes even be life-threatening. They can move to other places in the body and cause what's called an embolism. And so uh, what we do is we put people on a prophylaxis. Uh, We put them on a medication that prevents the formation of blood clots. And uh, so we keep track of how many patients get that uh, prophylaxis in the intensive care unit. And um, we also have uh, orders for those those, uh, medications and um, on the order sets, so that's how we that's how we uh, do that. And we have a lot. There's just a whole list of them, so I won't go through all of them. What, what types of duties might you perform as a hospitalist? I mean, are you doing surgeries? Are you doing diagnoses? Uh, you know, you mentioned reading X-rays and, and um, uh, evaluating tests, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Well, mostly um, we do the thinking part of uh, medicine. Um, so we're not trained general surgeons, but we do some uh, procedures, um, putting in special IVs or things like that. But uh, mostly we uh, manage the medications. We talk to the patients and their families. And we, um, we 
organize the um, the consultants and the other physicians who are involved in the care um, just the way the primary care doctor would. So if someone had a family doctor, uh, we uh, do what that family doctor would do, which would be to look at the whole patient and make sure that the specialists are um, are uh, functioning well together and that uh, the whole patient isn't forgotten. Sometimes the specialist can focus on their organ that, that they're focused on, and uh, they need someone to look at the rest of the person, too. And that's what we do. So is you, does your spectrum extend to the formerly pregnant or the, the, the OB unit? Uh, we help out in that area. Um, we have OBGYN uh, physicians in our hospital, and we generally call them if um, someone is, um, especially if they're later in their pregnancy, um, but we often get called by them to help if someone who, um, a woman who's pregnant uh, has an infection or some other medical problem, we help out with that. We also help uh, surgeons uh, manage surgical patients. Um, we help with the medical side of the issues. So, for instance, if a surgeon has to uh, do a surgery to take out someone's gallbladder or appendix, and that patient happens to have diabetes or um, high blood pressure, or any other medical issues, we help with that. And we can also help with the treatment of pain. So there's really no corner of the hospital that you're not in. Pretty much. We take care of about 60 to 70% of the patients in the hospital, or we're involved in the in their care anyway. What, what about uh, pediatric patients at Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital? Um, that's the one group of patients that we don't actually uh, take care of. Um, our cutoff is 15 um, we occasionally make an exception, but generally we, um, uh, we don't take care of patients, um, younger than 15, even if they weigh 200 pounds. <laughs> it sounds like something happened recently. No, oh, but, okay. but, uh, you do sometimes, uh, see people, uh, you know, um, children who are tall and look like adults, but the truth is they're really not adults. Uh, their physiology is different. Uh, we sometimes consult on those cases and, and, uh, give, uh, advice in terms of our area of expertise, but, but generally um, a pediatrician or a family practice uh, doctor would admit those patients and be the primary attending for those patients. And that would be whoever happens to be on call at the time, kind of like the way it was for internal medicine before the hospitalist program. Exactly, right. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that, that some patient is going to say, well, wait a minute, am I paying for two doctors when I could be paying for one? Is that... Is that kind of somewhat how it works, or am I just being overly cynical? No, I I actually think that that's an important um, it, it's an important point, something to think about because uh, clearly um, um, the cost of medicine is a major issue today. Um, there have been numerous studies um, looking at hospitalist medicine, and um, several of them have shown that um, hospitalists lower costs. Uh, we lower costs by um, um, ordering tests quicker because we're, you know, generally things don't wait till the next morning or to the end of the day. We can see the patients that much quicker and get tests ordered quicker. And also um, because we're able to um, partner with the hospital in, in some uh, cases to um, to lower costs. But but uh, generally, um, because what we're doing is was previously the role of the family practice or the you know. Uh, internal medicine doctor who was the patient's primary care doctor, uh, we don't really raise costs because now 
their their own doctor is is um, is in the office, so we're seeing uh, the patient in in the, in the place of that doctor. Okay, so instead of yes, I'm seeing two doctors, but it's uh, for the same length of time. In other words, if I w- if it wasn't you, it would be my primary care physician. Right. So either way, way, it's it the same number of hours. Right, and you know, I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that. Um, when someone's admitted to the hospital for a, a surgical problem um, or, or even something like a neurological problem, um, those physicians are, are specialized in that area. And so they're not, they're not really um, as comfortable taking care of the, some of the other medical issues, like I mentioned, diabetes and you know, uncontrolled blood pressure and things like that. Yeah. And, and so that's where we can really help out. And, and what would happen in the past is they would just call uh, the patient's uh, family doctor. And if they didn't have a regular doctor, uh, then they would call a physician who was on a call list. They would have a call list and they would call that doctor in. Yeah. I was just going to say that the specialists, they're not doing all the general medicine stuff all the time. They're doing their specialty for each patient that they see. Right. And I really think that seeing the, the whole patient and talking to the family is really one of the major um, aspects to uh, what we do and um, what we bring to the hospital experience uh, for uh, patients. We um, really do spend a lot of time sitting down and talking to families and explaining the, um, you know, the medical problem and explaining all the options. Um, and um, sometimes the decisions are very difficult and sometimes they're uh, very complicated and so we really uh, try to help families um, and patients make those decisions and, and get through um, what's often a very stressful time. Now, your duties, are they isolated just to Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital? They are. Um, we, uh, we're actually part of a larger uh, hospitalist program that um, involves the whole Sacramento Sierra uh, region uh, for Sutter. And um, we have uh, over 50 hospitalists in the um, in the region, but we've made a conscious decision to to uh, try to keep uh, the hospitalists, keep the physicians at one hospital, so that we don't have doctors running from you know working at one hospital and then the next week working at a different hospital. That actually uh, improves both the efficiency, but also the quality that the doctors can uh, deliver, the quality of the care that they can deliver. Well, it also allows patients who do happen to come back to have some familiarity with the doctor. And and for people like me out in primary care, I really appreciate knowing who the people are when I pick up the phone and talk to who's caring for my patient. It's, you know, you or Dr. Griffiths or Dr. Bat. And I know the person. I, we have a relationship. We know, uh, you know, how each other work. Uh, so you don't have outpatient duties other than maybe... Uh, when an outpatient comes in for a infusion procedure or something along those lines, a transfusion. Right. That, that's do true. Do it and then send them home. Um, we have, um, we have a total of about 10 doctors and five of us are full-time hospitalists and that's all we do. Um, the other, uh, five physicians, uh, actually, um, uh, do some outpatient work. And, um, it is interesting seeing their perspective, and uh, and it's also interesting when I call and, and talk to you and other primary care doctors. Uh, so I really try to um, keep up and uh, keep that outpatient perspective in mind because 
you know, if you if you only see people in the hospital, you start to think that everybody's really sick all the time. And it's, the truth is that they're not. <laughs> Interesting change of perspective there. Right. We need to take a break. Uh, we will be back after this, speaking uh, further with Dr. Joshua Hampman, the hospitalist from Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital. This is Medically Speaking Radio. Do you find yourself overspending, overeating, or in unhealthy relationships? Is your anger out of control, or do you struggle with drugs and alcohol? Are you tired of just trying harder to deal with your struggles? If you answered yes to any of these questions, there's help available. Celebrate Recovery is an international ministry that meets locally at Parkside Church, 3885 Richardson Drive, Auburn. Meetings are held every Friday night from 6 to 9.15 p.m. All areas of recovery are welcome. Celebrate Recovery is a Christ-centered, 12-step recovery program that offers real and lasting change. Contact Sheila Dobbin at 823-9911. That's 823-9911. For a listing of Celebrate Recovery locations, go to CelebrateRecovery.com. We invite you to join us at Parkside as we celebrate recovery. This is Dr. Mark Vaughn. I wanted to let you know a little bit about our practice at the Auburn Medical Group. The physician, nurses, and front desk personnel all approach the patient, asking themselves the question, how would I want to be treated if I was in the patient's shoes? Listen to what one of our patients has to say about her experience at the Auburn Medical Group. My name is Susie Brown. I just want to sincerely thank that group of people for being there for me in some emergency situations. They are very efficient. Their staff, including their receptionist, even when you call her, she's got uh, sympathy and compassion for you. And when you're ill, that's what you need. The nurses, the nurse staff is wonderful. And Dr. Vaughn listens to everything you say and they just get on things. They do not let anything lag. If you need a doctor, call us at 886-8630 or look at our website at auburnmedicalgroup.com. Gritstone Rock Club is Auburn's premier climbing and fitness facility. They offer rock climbing instruction for climbers of all ages and ability levels. In addition to classes, Gritstone Rock Club hosts birthday parties, has a team building ropes course, and provides professional outdoor instruction. If you want to climb with Gritstone Rock Club, contact them at 530-885-ROCK or online at gritstonerockclub.com. Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Welcome back. This is Medically Speaking Radio with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. We're speaking with Joshua Hammond, the, uh, Dr. Joshua Hammond, who is the... Now, what is your title with the hospitalist well, program? So I'm the medical director of medical the hospitalist director. program uh, in Auburn, uh, first uh, Sutter. And um, I've been doing that... Uh, for about uh, three years now, going on four. As the director, what are your responsibilities that the other people in the program don't have? My responsibilities are uh, to, um, I do a peer review. So um, when um, when there are cases that um, have, uh, you know, um, a bad outcome for whatever reason, we routinely review those cases to make sure that everything was done the way it was supposed to be done. Um, I also deal with the schedules for the doctors. 
um, making sure that people get uh, the time off that they need and uh, that they get the you know the number of shifts that they need and things like that. Um, I also uh, serve on the hospital committees and um, uh, represent the hospital physicians in the committees and and uh, work with uh, the hospital administrators there and also uh, doing some peer review work uh, in the committees. And I also go down uh, to Sacramento um, and meet with the medical directors for the other programs at uh, Sutter Roseville Medical Center and also Sutter Sacramento and um, get the perspective that they have. And we talk about how they deal with certain uh, problems and issues. And, um, um, and we also develop um, quality improvement um, measures that we institute uh, for all of the hospitals in the region because a lot of times it's, it's easier to come up with one uh, approach or uh, there's no reason to uh, reinvent the wheel if they're doing something well down there that we can adopt up here. Now, peer review seems like a self-explanatory term. Is it, in other words, you are rating other doctors? Well, it's, it's not as much about rating other doctors as it is about reviewing a case and uh, reviewing what happened and were all of the decisions that were made, were they the best decisions that could have been made? It's very easy to uh, see in hindsight where things could have been done differently. Um, but uh, at the time that something's happening, sometimes it isn't always clear. Um, but we definitely um, need to review uh, cases that don't uh, turn out well um, in order to make sure that um, uh, recommendations were followed appropriately, that the physician acted appropriately. So we review cases not only for the hospital uh, or for the hospitalists, but we also review cases uh, that are surgical cases and for doctors that are not hospitalists. Well, not just the cases that, that went badly. I think conversely, wouldn't you look at the successful cases and say, hey, what did we do right here? How can we replicate that? There's far too many of them. No. <laughs> but no, you know, that sounds like a good idea to look at the successful cases, but the truth is that most people uh, do get better, and most people leave the hospital. Uh, one of the things that we that we do, however, is um, we um, send surveys, and uh, it's not the hospitalist group ourselves that send the survey, but uh, there's a um, there's a third party um, uh, company uh, that's, that that uh, specializes in medical surveys, and they do surveys for hospital. Uh, hospitals all over the country, and they send surveys to all of the patients that leave the hospital, and we get that feedback. And so we see uh, if someone says, you know, I felt like I was uh, rushed or I felt like, you know, whatever it was, or if they were happy and they say, you know, this was great, you know, um, I love the care. And so we get to see those comments, and that really helps us. That's the Prescani. Is that the one you guys use? That's right. Prescani yeah. is the main one that we look at. Um, and that's used by uh, Sutter on the outpatient basis through Sutter Independent Physicians. My patients who are part of that, they, they rank me also. So I'm familiar with that thing that it's pages and pages of uh, questions that they can go over on, on that's true. different we, things. We try to distill it down to, to the ones that uh, pertain directly to the hospital doctors. And it comes down to about five different uh, parameters that uh, we look at, five different goals that we have. Those goals are one... Um, to um, to spend the time with patients. That's one of the one of the questions they ask, and that's 
of course, important to anyone who's in the hospital that your doctor spend the time with you. Uh, two, that we act in a professional manner. Um, three, that um, we um, demonstrate that we have the skill that's required. And um, four, what is four? I can't seem to remember what four is. That we show that we care, I believe. Um, that we show empathy. And I think that's very important um, for the healing process. Um, people need to know that their doctor really cares. And uh, we have a terrific group of doctors and um, they, um, they've done really well on actually all of those parameters. Before our time gets completely away, Dr. Hampman, I've got to ask a question probably on behalf of, of every potential hospital patient out there that's spending as much time as you do in the hospital. You know, and it's, it's getting to be dinner time, say, and, and you know, what, what dish would you particularly recommend? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Most of the patients I've talked to actually think the hospital food is pretty good at our hospital. Um, so um, really, I, I think that the, the important thing is that um, uh, people eat uh, appropriately, that they eat uh, healthy food, and that uh, in some cases uh, they need to eat enough food because some people don't eat enough, especially when they get older. Well, I mean, so is it the lobster bisque or is it the, the Chateaubriand? <laughs> which, which, which meal would you order? If well, I think you really can't go wrong in our hospital. And would we have Gary Moffat suggest a drink to go along with? A pairing, I think. The pairing, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. You have to watch the fava beans because there are a couple of uh, rare medical conditions that can cause a problem with fava beans. Yeah. Yeah, cannibalism, right? Yeah. I mean, you, so, Silence of the Lambs. I, I keep thinking, every time I hear fava beans, I think, I think of Hannibal Lecter, you know? I just, yeah. Is that also when you started shaving your head? <laughs> well, that, that looks like that about wraps it up. Um, we certainly do appreciate having Joshua Hampman, uh, doctor and director, medical director of the hospitalist program right here at Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital. And we, of course, thank Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital for sponsoring our show so that we exist. We want to remind our listeners that uh, you can listen to all of our shows. Uh, we're coming up now on five months worth of them. It's gone fast. And they're available at uh, medicallyspeakingradio.com. You can find them. You can search for Medically Speaking Radio on iTunes or, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do, we, we would like you to rate us there. because uh, And we need to thank the people who have rated us. Um, thank you for doing that. And they make fabulous Christmas gifts. Uh, you can send them to people. And- I, I guess you could. I never really. Anyway, we, we uh, hope you'll come back and join us next week at 10 o'clock on KHI AM 950. Or uh, if you're a podcast listener, uh, stay subscribed. And this is Dr. Mark Vaughn, Larry Finney, and this week, Joshua Hantman saying stay in good health.